Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. And it did have a radical change in politics. So in other words, Irish politics was fairly <clears throat> uniform and there wasn't much change or movement for, for decades in Ireland. And all of a sudden, because of the economic crash, about a million people at least, if not more, maybe two million, were dislodged from their economic situation very radically. So they either lost their jobs or they lost their homes uh, or they were thrown into massive economic turmoil uh, where they're battling just to survive. And as a result, uh, many of those people then started to look away from the establishment parties and started to look towards parties like Sinn Féin, like you know the parties of the left, etc. And, and there was a, a movement called the Right to Water movement that I was involved in myself. I was a chair of the Right to Water movement here in Mead. And that started around the country. And it mobilized hundreds of thousands of people away from the traditional political parties into a new political movement. Now, those... The, the ideology, unfortunately, in some aspects of that movement was very much pro-choice. Well, hello again, and this is your host, John Aidan Byrne. And you've just been listening there to my recent interview in Navin County Mays, Ireland, with Pat Tobin, a member of Ireland's Parliament in Dublin, and he's known as a TD in Dáil Éireann. Padder is leader of Aintu, which in a very short space of time has had remarkable success as a new political party and movement. Padder was a member and broke away from Sinn Féin, today a radical pro-abortion party, to set up the solidly pro-life Aintu, which is also an All-Ireland 32 County party. Padder also talked to me frankly about what he sees as moral hypocrisy in Irish politics today. Social media censorship in Ireland, his United Ireland outlook, why Westminster in London must not impose abortion in Northern Ireland against the wishes of the people, and the deep-seated social and economic challenges facing the Republic of Ireland, including a mountain of debt, homelessness, a hospital crisis, and fears too that Ireland's honeymoon with foreign multinationals attracted to Ireland by a low corporate tax rate could be closing in. Padder also shared his thoughts for Ireland on Brexit when the UK pulls out of the European Union as most expect, despite all the present wrangling. Brexit has created this massive debate and of a potential realignment so-called United Kingdom. Uh, Scotland is obviously looking at it potentially its own independence. And I think that if they proceed with a hard uh, Brexit, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, the United Kingdom, as they call it, uh, will no longer exist in five years' time. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Okay, I'm here with Paolo Tobin of Ain2. He formed this party and has a very interesting background. And we're going to talk about how the party came about. We're going to talk about the situation in Ireland, where he sees the future, a lot of big issues on the horizon, such as Brexit, 
uh, where the economy is going and what's happening across the globe. So welcome, Pader, and just tell us about how this party came into being. Thank you very much. I've been uh, involved in politics uh, for the last 30 years. I joined Sinn Féin back in 1997, and I was a Sinn Féin member for 21 years, a councillor for uh, Sinn Féin, and then a TD for Sinn Féin for about seven seven or eight years. And unfortunately, in many ways, my relationship came to the end uh, with Sinn Féin back last November. Uh, The party has changed radically just in the last uh, three or four years. It has flipped completely on a range of different issues, not least the right to life. Um, For me, I've always supported the right to life of everyone. And that used to be the policy of my former party, but uh, they have changed now. They don't support the rights of life for everyone at, at the moment. And also, I've always been a, an Irish nationalist and an Irish Republican. So I've always sought for Irish self-determination. I, I, I've also been the belief that Irish people should determine the future of Ireland. And my former partner has changed that view as well. And, and now they're supporting legislation coming from London on a range of different issues, which is an amazing turn of events uh, for a political party. Probably, probably their biggest change since the 1970s. So the political landscape has changed radically in Ireland over the last number of years. We have a very narrow political landscape. Most political parties seek to occupy the same political space at the same time. There's very little, if anything, between political parties at the moment. And that has meant that there's a whole range of Irish society that simply doesn't have a voice in Leinster House. And I'm acutely aware of this, and I hear it on the doors regularly. So when the break came with my former party there last November, my view was it's really important for functional democracy that everybody has their views articulated in the doll. And the only way that I could see that could happen is if we, that we built a new grassroots activist space political party around the 32 counties of Ireland. So we did, and the name of the party is Ain't Too. It's about six months old at the moment. Its primary objectives are the unity of the Irish people, North and South, uh, economic justice for people. We want to see prosperity. We want people to see people who work hard, take risks, invest, spend time in education. We want to see those people do well. But we also want to see a a safety net under people in times of trouble with regards to housing or health or education or feeding their kids. And we're also, unfortunately, we are the the only political party in Leinster House currently that support the rights of life of everyone. So that's there are are, our three major policies. Uh, We fought our first local election just recently in May, North and South. We did really well. We've over 2,000 members with 60 functioning common. Uh, we got five elected reps. We, we uh, contested about 70 local election constituencies. Uh, in the constituencies that we fought, we got about 5% of the vote, which is a really good vote for a new party. And now we're starting to select for the general election. So it's a lot of work. It's um, a, an uphill struggle to build a new political party. The, the system is built to protect the incumbent political parties. But we have the advantage, in a way, in that many of the political parties are hollowing out from their core with regards to their activists. Their activists are starting to leave them. And the opposite has happened to us. We have this strong team of grassroots activists around the country. So you're polling members still from your former party and from some of the other parties? Yeah, so the bulk of our uh, membership would probably be uh, people who were not involved in politics whatsoever. But a big chunk of our, our members are former Fianna Fáilers, and former Sinn Féiners, uh, because we are a 32 county All-Ireland party uh, as such, uh, and that's the reason. But we would have people who would come to us from Fine Gael, Labour, the Greens, and other smaller parties too. But in the main, it's, let's say, Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin, and people who are non-aligned previously who have come to us. 
And so it's an exciting time. Yeah, if you look at the vote in the local and European elections, it's clear that you took votes from the established parties and from your former party. Um, in West Belfast, for example, you pulled quite a serious number of 700-something plus votes. Yeah, so typically in, in the local election in the north, you'd have to get a 1,000 votes to actually take a seat. Uh, so, But we were 20 weeks old. I was canvassing in, on the streets of the north, you know, three or four days before the election. Half the people at the doors still didn't know who we were. But even in that short space of time, in places, um, constituencies in West Belfast, we're pulling about 750 votes. Uh, we pulled 1,200 votes in a small constituency in Derry and got our candidates, councillor Anne McCluskey elected uh, there. In, in Armagh, we pulled 822 votes. And in a range of constituencies across the north, we got well over two thirds of the necessary votes to take a seat. And people who know the politics of the north know how entrenched and ingrained it is and how people are very slow to change their votes in case it, it is allows for the other community maybe to come in and, and take seats. But people were, you know, when we were canvassing in Belfast, people were running after us on the doors and saying, thank God you guys have actually formed because they had literally nobody to vote for. And that's our, I've held about 40 meetings across the 32 counties in the space of about four months. Mm. And the sentence that has been said the most at those meetings is, we have nobody to vote for, nobody speaks for us anymore. Mm. Uh, how will that translate, do you think, into the general election, which is imminent, maybe November or whenever that's coming up? So we're selecting now for the candidates for the general election. Uh, as I say, this is it, it's pretty much imminent. And we're, we reckon we have about seven target constituencies in the south of Ireland and about four in the north. So we'll be targeting East Derry, Foyle, West Belfast and Newry Armagh in the north. Donegal, Cavan Monaghan, Meath West, Dublin West, uh, Wexford, Limerick City, Cork Northwest, most likely uh, in the southern elections. And if we can get a foothold uh, in the Dáil with three or four uh, TDs, I believe that will give us an opportunity to grow. It is really difficult to set up a new political party and gain Dáil seats. But the level of energy that we're getting at the moment leads me to believe that we're in a, a, a really good chance to do that now. Going back to the pro-life issue, a lot of people worldwide, and maybe some of those here in Ireland who are staunch pro-lifers, were shocked at the outcome of the referendum on the Eighth Amendment. They didn't think so many people would vote to repeal the Eighth Amendment. Can you give us some background to that? Uh, there's been suggestions that the whole campaign was manipulated, there was media bias, the government... Uh, wanted re repeal and then there was a lot of uh, left-leaning socially liberal members promoting it as well in the Dáil. Yeah so I suppose what's happened is for the last number of years we have a very concentrated media so in the States you have obviously left, right, liberal, conservative media and that would be the same in Britain and in Germany and right across the world so in those types of, of democracies with that level of diversity of media you typically have really good debate and you know uh, opposing views and plural views that coexist with each other and that's a healthy thing for uh, any democracy in ireland we don't in ireland we have only about five national media companies uh, it's extremely concentrated within small uh, a number of small a small number of big businesses if you like we've only about a, a thousand national journalists most of those would know each other 
uh, would come from the same demographic, the same geographic space, and would probably admit on a private basis that they share the same political views on, on a range of different issues. So <clears throat> if you don't chime with the particular media uh, view on, on an issue, it's very difficult to actually gain traction politically in Ireland. So that forces then the political parties pretty much into the same space because they need that oxygen uh, of media coverage to exist. So over a number of years, we've had, I suppose, a constant stream, a constant message being broadcast by the media. And we've had politicians, political parties who were once, you know, radically opposed to abortion and said that they were pro-life. All of these people in the space of about 18 months made this radical change. Now, whether you're, you're pro-choice or pro-life is usually one of those characteristic views that are so central to who you are and it's very hard from both perspectives to see how people can just like hip or jump from one side to the other uh, so radically on them but that's exactly what happened here in ireland you know elected reps put their finger in the air to find out which way the wind is blowing they had very little backbone no roots uh, in, in 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 the local communities and they they just flipped sides uh, very very quickly and in that space there was a referendum um, and strange things happened in that referendum you had Facebook and Google started to ban advertisements or, uh, you know, videos. And, and Facebook has openly admitted that they interfered in the last few days. In the it was really, campaign. really, it was unprecedented. It never happened before where all of a sudden uh, certain types of ads were banned uh, from. And I wouldn't mind, but some of the pro-life campaigns had actually strategically invested a lot of, of their money. And these were, you know, ads that were generated in Ireland, for Ireland. They weren't necessarily ads that were generated abroad for Ireland uh, as well. So listen, that's what's happened. Ireland has changed radically now. There's, there's, we're, not, we're not in a situation where the Eighth Amendment can be brought back, unfortunately. It's, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but where we are at at the moment is the legislation is there, but I believe the legislation has a number of serious flaws and difficulties in it. That legislation is bad legislation. And I will tell you, it will throw up major problems for many individuals in the future. And I suppose it's our job to make sure that we fix the legislation to make sure that it doesn't do that, that it doesn't make victims of mothers and their unborn children in the future. And, you know, I believe in an incrementalist fashion, we can actually improve the legislation somewhat. Just going back to how it might shake out in the doll after the next election, doing incremental steps. In theory, is it possible if we had a majority now that's a stretch of pro-life lawmakers delivered to the doll. Could they roll everything back and ban abortion? In theory, it's not going to happen mm-hmm. um, because even those TDs in the doll who fought, uh, favored the rights of life, they're living in fear. They're, they're keeping their heads down. They're afraid to art- articulate views. They won't stand up for what uh, they believe in. They believe that this is done and dusted. It's, it's, it's over. Uh, and that's the end of the story. So, but what... I believe where, where the change can happen is if we build a political organization across the country. And that political or- organization is fighting in every single ballot box across the country and is taking votes in every single ballot box. And if that's the case, I have no doubt that the political establishment, when they're strategizing in their back rooms, will take that into consideration. And they will realize that if they're not to lose seats in different parts of, of the country, they have to start representing people again on this particular issue. And I know from the local elections gone by, a lot of the votes that we received, 
Some of them didn't take seats for us, but they took seats off other political parties. And you know, those individual parties, they're, they're wise, they're, they're, they're smart when it comes to politics. And they'll know that the position that they're taking at the moment has, has actually done that uh, political damage. And there's no doubt that a big chunk of the vote that Sinn Féin has lost is, uh, has been because of that over the last while. So that's why we're building a, a political organization across every single ballot box in the country. Now, it's important to say at this moment in time in that we are very much a, a political party that focuses on the bread and butter issues, mm-hmm. the health care of people, the housing of people, the, the, the provision of educational services, transport infrastructure, enterprise, proper regional development. Because, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, 99% of the population of Ireland, probably any country, vote on the basis of their wallets. They vote, they vote on the basis of whether they can feed their kids, roof their kids, help, you know, provide health care for their kids, get education for their kids. Uh, and if we're going to gain politically, we have to have better policies, better representatives, and be more active on the ground on all of those issues. And to be honest, you know, the, it, it always strikes me that we have a, a, a political party like Fine Gael in power at the moment, and they say that they're pro-choice, but the economic policies that they deliver are the economic policies that make so many women feel that they have no choice. So last year, 19 women gave birth homeless in this country. Now, where's the choice uh, for those mothers uh, in that situation? So what we're trying to do as a political party, and this is probably the most important thing we can do, is we want to give mothers, every mother in the country, the economic confidence that she can raise her child. Because we know that about 80% of abortions that happen are what's called socioeconomic abortions, where women don't have the confidence to be able to proceed. Well, they feel they don't have the confidence to proceed with the pregnancy. So what AIM2 are looking to do is create economic environments that will exist that actually give those mothers a real choice with regards to raising their kids. And that's what we hope to do. And there always has to be somebody to step up to lend that mother support, emotional and so forth. For sure. Um, I just want we can come back to that. I just want to go back in history a little bit. Uh, Ten years ago, thereabouts, Ireland had a financial bailout, mm-hmm. and a lot of things changed. And 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 you could trace the start of the pro-choice movement back to that and to certain connections. How is Ireland ten years after the bailout? Well, it's I studied politics uh, in college uh, when I was younger. It's politics and economics and enterprise. And I would say that if you're a student of politics now that whole last 10 years would be a very, very interesting period of time with regards to the change of politics. And it did have a radical change in politics. So in other words, Irish politics was fairly uniform and there wasn't much change or movement for for decades in Ireland. And all of a sudden, because of the economic crash, about a million people at least, if not more, maybe two million, were dislodged from their economic situation very radically. So they either lost their jobs, or they lost their homes, or they were thrown into massive economic turmoil where they're battling just to survive. And as a result, uh, many of those people then started to look away from the establishment parties and started to look towards parties like Sinn Féin, like you know, the parties of the left, etc. And, and there was a, a movement called the Right to Water movement that I was involved in myself. I was a chair of the Right to Water movement here in Meath. And that started around the country. And it mobilized hundreds of thousands of people away from the traditional political parties into a new political movement. Now, those, the, the, the ideology, unfortunately, in some aspects of that movement was very much pro-choice. And they, those people started to percolate through the political parties 
from about 2013 onwards. Many of them got elected in the local elections in 2014. Many of them became senior in political mm-hmm. parties by tw- 2016. Many of them got elected into the Dáil in 2016. And many of them then started to use the, 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 the political power they had to move for change uh, oh. on, on, on the issue of the right to life. Now, my view on this is that there's, there's a... There was obviously very good things about the right, right to water campaign and that it sought to make sure that people had a proper and decent uh, income, that they have access uh, to the, 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 the things that they needed, such as water. But th- that's the influence that that particular shock to the political and economic system had in that uh, area. Now, when the, the, the debate on the, on the Eighth Amendment was happening in the South last year, Similar things happened. There was there was hundreds of thousands of people who marched on the streets for the right to life. Mm-hmm. There were you know tens of thousands of people who were canvassing and leafleting across the country. And by that, one of the largest public demonstrations in Irish history. Exactly, with, with regards uh, on, the, the, the right to life. On the right to life. So, and I would say that like the right to water and right to life, like they're two rights that people you know would that are extremely important and central to survival. Obviously, so um, now. Our job in AIM2 is to make sure that those people that were involved in those campaigns don't go home, don't disappear like snow off a ditch, but start to percolate into the political system and start to bring their skills and their energy into the political system to actually start to change things. And that's really important. It's also important just to remind people of what's happening in the north of Ireland at the moment. The north of Ireland is a very strange situation. Obviously, people would know about the Good Friday Agreement and the Good Friday Agreement created a number of institutions. One of the institutions it was Stormont. It's an assembly, a proto-government, if you like, which hasn't operated properly for about two and a half years at this stage. And we have a kind of, a, let's say, a, a, a type of direct rule happening from London at the moment. But London changed tack just in the last couple of weeks. And Westminster, the British Parliament, decided to force one of the most extreme forms of abortion onto the north of Ireland just in the last couple of weeks. Now, the people of the North of Ireland have said in polls that they're opposed to Westminster uh, imposing this type of legislation on the North. It's a devolved issue according to the Good Friday Agreement. It's for the elected representatives of the North. In 2016, those elected representatives voted to not to change the, the right to life law in the North of Ireland. Uh, and voted against abortion. And yet we have unelected uh, MPs with no mandate in the North of Ireland, who have no understanding of the people of the North of Ireland, against the wishes of the people in the North of Ireland, forcing this new legislation on the people of the North of Ireland. Now, if Stormont doesn't resurrect before the end of October, this legislation will be uh, enacted fully uh, in the North. Now, shockingly on that, we have a political party called Sinn Féin that I was a member of, and I'm brokenhearted to see this because the reason I joined Sinn Féin was it was a solidly self-determination, United Ireland, Irish Independence Party. And that meant, very simply, is that they opposed London rule. So for 200 years, Republicans have gone to London and said, stop legislating for Ireland. And now, just in the last two or three years, Sinn Féin has dropped that policy, has made a radical U-turn, and the leadership of Mary Lou MacDonald and Michelle O'Neill have gone to London and started to ask Westminster to legislate for Ireland. Like it's, it's, it's this policy change has been so radical. That's the, I believe it's the most radical policy change that's happened in Sinn Féin since the 1970s split. Um, what's the chances that they will roll back this abortion laws? Will, will something happen by September? 
You know, um, people have been taken by a complete surprise by this uh, particular change. It's hard to see it being rolled back, is the truth of the matter, um, because the SDLP have remained silent upon it, even though most of their members and most of their elected reps would probably say that they're pro-life. They're having a similar kind of change that happened to Fianna Fáil a couple of years ago. Their leadership changes, and then the young, ambitious people who want to be on the right side of the leadership, they start to change as well, and then all of a sudden... there's a critical mass to have changed and then the, the party's gutted of its, of its policy. Um, and so, you know, it's it, it's hard to see that change happening unless people actually get up off their knees, get active and start to agitate that uh, we have change in this. That's the only way. And I would encourage anybody who is like me shocked with regards to what's happened in the SDLP in Sinn Féin, you know, to come over to AIM2 and, and join with us in our campaign. Um, you have one, uh, have one elected member in Derry uh, on the, for your party. That's right. And she's Dr. McCluskey. Dr. Anne McCluskey uh, has been a GP in Derry for well over 20 years. She's been immersed in the needs of her local community uh, and she stood for us uh, in the elections. Uh, and I'm hopeful um, that she will stand for us in the, the next Stormont election in Foyle. And I'm hopeful that we'll take a seat uh, in the in the um, the Northern Assembly elections uh, in Foyle, uh, along with other places, so that you know we, that there is a let's say a political reality that will dawn on Sinn Féin and the SCLP that they cannot articulate views a million miles away from the grassroots and expect to get away with it. So your party has support in the north of Ireland and in the south, and now we have this pro-choice legislation making its way through, uh, inflaming tensions, no doubt, on the ground. Uh, and on top of that, we have, and maybe you can talk about it, Brexit, um, and where, where is all that headed? People talk about a hard border and, you know, a lot of difficulties being created. And where do you see it ending? Well, obviously, we have, we have a crazy situation um, that... The Tories in London are going through, and um, this is the Tory party, the Conservative Party in London are going through major political turmoil. There's a lot of egos, there's a lot of personal ambition, etc., driving this turmoil. They have decided, obviously, to proceed with uh, Brexit. Many of them want a hard Brexit. Remember this: the people of the North of Ireland voted to remain in the EU, and part of the Good Friday Agreement is this idea of consent that nothing would happen to the I suppose, to the situation of the North of Ireland without the consent of the people of the, uh, of the North of Ireland. So they voted to remain, and yet the Tories have decided to take that decision, scrunch it into a ball, and throw it into the waste paper mm-hmm. basket, mm-hmm. Uh, and ignore the democratic wishes of the people of the North. And uh, as a result, we have a, a, a very strange situation that there is now a growing view amongst nationalists, and maybe former unionists, I suppose, at this stage, that's really the only alternative here is a united Ireland. Mm. So the desire for a united Ireland is at the highest level probably has been for years and years and years. Um, there's a poll done in RTE which as I said in the, in the south 70% of the population wanted a united Ireland. BBC did a similar poll in the north which puts those seeking Irish unity at about 43% of the vote when it came to a hard Brexit which is neck and neck with those who seek um, to develop a or to seek to maintain the Union of Britain and the North of Ireland. So what we in AIM2 are saying now is what we need to do is take our heads out of the sand. We need to start preparing for that eventuality. We need the Southern Government to call for a New Ireland Forum 
where people of all political persuasions, nationalists and unionists, can sit around a, a table for a number of months and start to trash out what type of agreed United Ireland we will have. Uh, and I think we're very, very close to that situation now. Can the United Ireland be brought about peacefully without yeah. some tensions uh, being spontaneously uh, erupting? I believe that uh, there is a momentum for Irish unity there uh, on both sides of the community that we've never seen before. So you have people like Eileen Paisley, people like Alex Kane, a large number of people from that kind of unionist Protestant background mm-hmm. who are actually saying, listen, we're going to have to consider this now. We're going to have to look at, at this particular situation. And I reckon that many of them see that there is a benefit to self-determination. And they remember that the economy of the North in the, when partition happened, mm. the northern economy was way ahead of the southern economy. The three richest counties, 80% of the economic activity in the, nor- in, in the island of Ireland happened around three counties around Belfast. Belfast was the biggest city in Ireland, by far the richest city in Ireland. That is flipped because London treats the north like an, e- an economic backwater. And the south is now multiples of uh, exports and wealth than the north of Ireland has. And I think people are seeing that and people want to be able to remain in a situation where they can trade in, a, in an easy, functional fashion with the south of Ireland. Now, there's always going to be people who are going to kick up and have a difficulty with change. And I think we need to be able to explain to those people that this is not a zero-sum outcome. This is not a situation where we're looking for them to lose their identity or, 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 sh- or forget about their Britishness, mm-hmm. etc. That we want to build a pluralist Ireland where there is actually a multitude of different identities uh, politically that people can feel comfortable uh, in an Ireland that is united, that is working together and that they will be respected and that nobody will be treated any differently. Uh, whatever their religious background is, the, the state will have no cause no fear or favour on anybody in that regard. So how would uh, the DUP and Arlene Foster and that group preserve their British identity in this new Ireland, if you will? Well, first of all, one of the, one of the things I would like to see is that we, we would have an agreed negotiated Ireland, that we would all sit down and start to work out how that would be. And think about it, the, the unionists currently have about 2% of the vote in Westminster. If they joined a United Ireland, they would have about 16% of the vote. And it's funny, I was listening to, 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 to the radio this morning and I was listening to a speech given by Nigel Dodds, a DUP MP in Westminster. And he said, the only time anybody ever comes to a debate in Westminster about issues that concerns the North of Ireland is if there's a, a, a personal or a benefit to themselves that the, mm-hmm. most of the MPs in, the, in, in Westminster actually don't care that much with regards to what happens uh, in the North of Ireland. So I think in many of those, there has to be a, a dawning on, on them that Westminster is not for them. There was a, a um, poll carried out of Tory members, and those Tory members said that they would su- they support Brexit more than the union between the North and uh, Britain. So Brexit has created this massive debate and of a potential realignment, so-called United Kingdom. Scotland is obviously looking at it potentially its own independence. And I think that if they proceed with a hard uh, Brexit, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, the United Kingdom, as they call it, will no longer exist in five years' time. So uh, the picture here could be a united Ireland uh, under the scenario you're describing there, uh, if the polling comes out in the right direction, within the European Union? Yeah, I think so. I think now we, w- we would be, as I said, the party of self-determination. So we believe that... 
decisions closer to the people that they're made that are better decisions because you can influence those decisions and you can hold the decision makers to account. So we want more power brought back from Brussels and Berlin back to Ireland, to be honest. We think so Brussels... So less, less EU? Yeah, I think so. I think actually the EU is the biggest threat to the EU at the moment. And you can see that in Italy and Hungary and and Greece, mm. and you can see it in, in obviously in Britain. And if we had a f- more flexible... Look, we believe in a partnership of EU countries working together in a democratic manner to try to resolve major international issues of importance mm. to the continent of Europe and to make sure that we trade well with each other. And we fully as a party aim to support that. But we don't support a federalized European Union where we're getting dictated to by Brussels on, on loads of different issues, not least uh, taxation. We don't support a European army. Uh, we don't support a European foreign policy. Um, we want to see far more uh, self-determination amongst the EU nations. Would you uh, agree to a European Central Bank? Well, to be honest, right now, it is very hard. Like, obviously, if you have a common currency, you have to have a European Central Bank. I think it's very important when you look at the the history of the currency. The currency has obviously had, you know, important pluses uh, in that it does allow for easier trade between European countries. But it has major downfalls as well. And actually, the crash that we had 10 years ago was actually caused in large part by the fact that we no longer controlled our interest rate at the time, mm-hmm. uh, which in part led to the overheating of, of the property market, which led to the banking crisis. And then because of the European Central Bank and, and the European Union, they forced ourselves, I suppose, to bail out uh, that crash, to bail out th- those banks, which means that we actually spent as a state about 64 billion euros. We are 1% of the population of Europe, but we took about 40% of the cost of the European banking crisis on the shoulders. Right now, the southern state owes about 205 billion euros. That's 40,000 euros for every man, woman and child that's actually owed currently because, in part, because of that crash. And um, that's, that's higher than the, the te- yeah, although adjusted for inflation, it's still a huge number. It's, it's numerically, it's above what we originally owed. Yes, it's, 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 it's a massive, it's a massive a, a amount uh, of money. So uh, it's way higher than ever before. And the, the current government has kicked it into the future for the generations to pay. Now, are we ready for the next recession in Ireland in that case? I think the, 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 there's major danger here. Ireland's had significant growth over the last uh, five or six years. We have a very pro-cyclical boom-bust governments that you know, you know, radically increase growth, see a massive crash, radically increase growth. We're coming towards capacity again in, in, in the market. But we have what's called a pro-cyclical trap here currently. Because normally at this stage of the cycle, the government would have repaid a good bit of the debt that it incurred in the crash, or it would have uh, reinvested a good chunk of the money in the public services that it maybe reduced during the crash. But that hasn't happened yet because of the severity of the crash. And yet we're actually looking at potentially a, a, another economic downturn in the next three or four years. And we're looking at a potential of a Brexit. And we don't have any headroom in debt terms at the moment because we're maxed out literally with regards to debt. So if we get into that situation in future of an economic downturn with a Brexit, it's very hard to see how we can ease our way through it as a normal country would. In the early history of Sinn Féin, they were opposed to EU membership mm. um, and now they fully embrace it. Yeah, so that, so that, that would be one of the major U-turns that Sinn, modern Sinn Féin has done in the last four or five years. 
So obviously Sinn Féin was founded on the basis of self-determination. The concentration of, of power in Brussels is a obviously mutually exclusive to self-determination. And that's why Sinn Féin's instinct was to oppose those particular referendums in the past. But they have changed that view uh, completely now. And you're talking about financial resources and capital investments. If you could spell out uh, to listeners what that means in practical terms. Ireland has a huge crisis in the hospital services. Uh, there's a children's hospital being built, and I believe it's way over budget. There's infrastructure problems. There's broadband issues. Where is the money being invested, and why are these things not being tackled? Well, there's a couple. Of, there's a couple of reasons, and um, because of let's say the ideological views of governments for the last twenty years, and because of the crash that happened, a the public service and the delivery of public service from housing, health, and education has been massively gutted. So it's kind of like you know if you have you've a you've a house and you haven't invested in your house for you know, 15 or 20 years, there's going to be some level of depreciation, some level of, you know, it, your fridge might be working or your, leak, your roof might be leaking, etc. So if you don't continuously invest in your infrastructure and in your public services, they're going to start deteriorating. And that's what's happened in, in a major way. So right now, in, in a population of less than 5 million in the south of Ireland, we have 750,000 people who are on waiting lists uh, for the hospitals. We have 100,000 people who spent time on trolleys last year in hospitals. 2,500 people waiting for up to a year for their first meeting with a a mental health uh, clinician, many of those uh, children. We've well over 10,000 people who are homeless currently, over over 3,000 of those who are children at the moment. We have 100,000 people waiting uh, on waiting lists for housing and a, a phenomenal housing crisis, which has seen obviously rents and property prices shoot through the roof into completely unaffordable spaces. Like the, pr- the price in, uh, in Dublin at the moment, the average house is nine times the average wage in Dublin. In the rest of the state, it's six times the average wage. Now, in, in a functioning economy, the average house costs three to four times the average wage. But that's, that's not the situation. So in many ways, Ireland is really, really stuffed as far as the provision of basic care and services to people and infrastructure. Now, that's not to say that's the full picture. We've got to be honest with people too. Like, there's many aspects of, this, of, of the southern economy that are growing and that are flying. In many ways, Dublin is becoming a kind of a remote satellite of Silicon Valley where all of these tech companies are located now in Dublin because we have this bargain basement tax base uh, that the government have created, which has made it so attractive. They've basically made this country into, let's say, a tax shelter to a certain extent, uh, where these companies can come here, locate their profits and pay very little taxes on it. This has obviously raised the heckles of a lot of people in America, a lot of people in Europe as well. And, you know, that's going to change because America and Europe are not going to stand by and watch, you know, their companies hide their profits and taxes uh, in Ireland for too much longer. There will be changes on that. And that could provide uh, an economic shock to Ireland. Not to go into too much detail, but just again to give an example of some of the exposures, corporation tax has grown massively over the last number of years. Now that's a good thing in many ways, but that corporation tax is concentrated in the hands of a number of very small, uh, 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 very big companies, but a small number of hands. So about ten CFOs, so, so chief financial officers, make a decision for about 40% of all our corporation tax. Mm -hmm. So 10 people will determine a big chunk of our 
billions and billions of corporation tax. And that corporation tax is now being used on current spending. So if there was a digital tax or a consolidated corporation tax enforcing us from Europe, or if the Americans actually changed their tax laws to ensure that we had this tax competitive advantage, well then those CFOs would make the logical business decisions and relocate their mobile companies. And many of them would, would pull from Ireland, which would see a big collapse in the taxation, which would then lead to another difficulty in the uh, provision of public services. So Ireland is doing well in many ways. There's lots, lot, massive growth. It has a massive GDP figures, but some of those figures hide exposures that the country has. And that's why a are trying to get the governments to focus on fixing those exposures, trying to develop more in, in indigenous business, a reasonable size and standard that's stickier, that's more invested in its local area, that has more of, how would you say, more uh, of a multiplier effect uh, in the supply chains locally as well. Um, not to get into too much detail, if to describe uh, the composition of the Irish government, it's led by Green Gale, Fianna Fáil, Supply and Confidence Arrangements, but then there's a motley crew of independents. I mean, is it a mixture of Trotskyites and free enterprise people, whatever goes? Well, I suppose um, the, obviously the, the two largest parties are still Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Uh, Sinn Féin is uh, the third largest party at the moment, even though it's expected in the next general election that they'll lose a significant number of their TDs. There will be a small number of Trotsky uh, TDs, just about, about six or seven. But they have, they have a lot of influence. They have a lot of influence. In fairness, they're very capable individuals. They're, they're very fluent individuals. They're very committed and they're very campaigning. And uh, as a result, they have phenomenal influence over the political discourse. Some of their, let's say, their social policies would chime very much with the media, even though the media would be South Dublin kind of, let's say, more uh, middle class in its, in its outlook, there would be, let's say, a crossover between the, the social policy of the Trotskyite TDs and the media. And as a result, they're given a, a very strong platform. Uh, and that's where, I suppose, they have got their influence. Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are, let's say, they, were, they are husks of personal ambition. Mm-hmm. So in other words, they, their core policies and ideology has been gutted and lost over the generations. And I was actually interested enough, I was a member of Fianna Fáil when I was a kid oh. uh, for a very short period of time, but a couple of years. And I remember at the time, there's about 30% of the local common, it was, a, it was a Kevin Barry common in UCD. And about 30% of the people there were very good people, hardworking, conscientious, Republican, 32 county, wanted to make sure that the functioning economy yeah, people got looked after at, at all levels of society. But I saw about 70% of the members there who, who I would say were people who were there for their personal ambition. They saw Fianna Fáil as a vehicle of success politically. You could get into power or be close to people in power. Careerists. Careerists, uh, payroll politicians, if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what's happened with the two main uh, political parties. Fine Gael would probably be economically on the right, probably a little bit more neoliberal than Fianna Fáil. But Fianna Fáil would be rudderless really now with regard to ideology. Fianna Fáil have this, the Fianna Fáil leadership have this wonder, wonderful ability to treat their members with complete disdain and still have their loyalty. It's, it's a, a, a magic political skill that they've achieved over the last number of years. So two years ago, there was an Ordesh. 90% of the members of the delegates voted 
to have a right to life uh, policy. And their leadership stood up afterwards and says, but that's very fine. You can have your say, but we'll, we'll decide policy in the front bench of the party. Now, to, last year, the Fianna Fáil had an Ordesh and they got rid of the rights of members to bring motions and to speak in those motions and to vote in those motions. And anybody that spoke at the Fianna Fáil Ordesh had to pre-submit their speeches so that they could be reviewed to see what they okay to be said. So the, one of the problems of the major political parties in, in the South currently is the internal democracy, they have the infrastructure of internal democracy, yeah. but it's not working whatsoever. It's simply theirs as window dressing. The membership have literally no say over their organizations. The problem is, and I come up against this in the, the local elections, and I spoke to people who were from Fianna Fáil. They said, Patter, we think that Micheál Martin is a disaster. We think he's bringing us completely in the wrong direction. We actually think that aim to have the right policies on United Ireland, the right policies on economic justice, the right policies on prosperity, the right policies on the right to life. But you know what? If I left Fianna Fáil, my grandfather would turn in this grave. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you have people who are not deciding their politics on the, logics, the logic of their mind and who feel locked into a party because of a loyalty of a person that went two generations ago, a person who would absolutely not be a member of the current Fianna Fáil party, that's one of the difficulties that you come up against. Uh, where would you put your own party on the political spectrum, left, centre? Or... We are we are a an all-Ireland political party. Uh, we are probably, and economically, we're centre-left. And I, I would be very cautious about putting the right to life on a, on a right or left issue at all. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny, the, I think there's a realignment happening in politics, and you can see that nearly from Fine Gael in Ireland. This, they are a, a centre-right party economically. They are a liberal party, if you like, economically, a neoliberal party economically. Now, liberalism is about the deregulation of society to allow for freedoms within that particular society. And they, they're trying to do that in, in, in the economy. And they're also trying to do that in, in the social society area as well. Now, my politics is about having you know, freedoms absolutely but there has to be a, a limit to those freedoms so the limit to my freedoms is when they start to negatively impact on your freedoms mm-hmm. so we need to regulate society so that the most vulnerable don't get hurt and don't suffer and that's why i would see myself probably center left economically because so i do want to see prosperity and people who work hard achieve much but i also want to make sure that we regulate society that workers have a proper wage that you know, people have a proper access to healthcare and education, to housing uh, as well. Now, I also want to regulate the social society too, because I want to see the most vulnerable protected in that space. And I believe that's where my instinct for the right to life comes from, because I want to see that space regulated at some level to make sure that the most vulnerable. You know, I don't want to see a survival of the fittest or, or you know, kind of um, uh, that type of society gain the upper hand. I want to see an equal society where everybody, no matter how rich or poor, no matter how weak or strong, big or small, have a stake in that society and are treated equally. Irish politicians routinely travel the globe to meet the Irish diaspora and supporters and just get out there. Have you any travel plans coming up for America or anywhere else? Well, we hope to get to Britain. I'm hoping to get to, to London and Manchester and Liverpool after the summer uh, holidays, probably in around September. I'm hoping to get to the United States probably around January as well. 
So make sure you don't have too much snow over there. <laughs> <laughs> so I can travel when I'm over there. And um, so, yeah, so that's there the two, because we, we would have a lot of people in America who are reaching out to us, uh, who would have been former supporters of Sinn Féin, uh, who are reaching out to us and saying that uh, they want to get involved in some level of support. And uh, I would say, you know, we, people can help us in so many ways. Uh, we will be launching a Cordia AIM2 in the United States, uh, where people who are aligned to our politics can actually join together and become active in, in the United States for us and help support our objectives there. And even, you know, help contact people who, their, their, their friends and relations that live in Ireland and, you know, motivate them to get involved with us as well. And, um, you know, because I, I believe it's, I've never been a fan of the Irish state. I've always been a fan of the Irish nation. Mm. And the Irish nation is a global nation at the moment. It is the people living in Ireland, north and south. But it's also the people living in Croydon. It's the people living in the Bronx. It's the people living in Chicago. Uh, it's the people living in Montreal and uh, Sydney and, and right across the world. And we need to bring about that. And that's why AIM2 is supporting this um, referendum in the south of Ireland to give votes for the presidential election to the uh, Irish citizens living abroad. Now, where, how far would that vote extend? Is it first generation or Irish-born citizens or is it still in flux? Still in flux. So the, 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 the current proposal by the government is that all Irish citizens will have a vote. So that means you'll have to be a, a citizen and a passport holder to have a vote. Uh, so if you're third generation Irish, you, you won't necessarily have a vote in that scenario. So they reckon at that extent, there's about 3.6 million potential voters around the world. Now, there's, there's at least 17 million people who claim Irish ancestry mm-hmm. around the world. But the vote, uh, it would be very, very difficult to extend the vote to that registration and proof of ancestry would be very, very difficult. Now, there's other people who just simply wanted to have, have it to be Irish-born citizens around the world as well, which would reduce that figure uh, by a good chunk. There's a campaign by some of the political parties here in Ireland to stop that happening, uh, but AIM2 will be fully supporting the right of Irish citizens abroad to participate in the presidential election. And uh, what do you think the likelihood of this vote being extended? Anybody a sense of where... Um, I'd say it's kind of 50-50 in, in the balance. I actually think that the government, to be honest, if they were to, to, to limit the votes to Irish-born citizens around the world, they'd probably have a better chance of passing it because there's a little bit of fear. See, there's only about 3.5 million voters in the south of Ireland. So there's 3.8 million citizens living outside the south of Ireland. So there's a worry that our president would there be a bigger mandate outside the south for a president. And that's causing a little bit of worry. But in fairness, 1.8 of that 3 million are people living in the north of Ireland anyways. Do you know what I mean? So uh, if you take it in that basis, you're talking about 5.3 million voters in Ireland, roughly to about 2 million outside. So that's a, a, a less difficult uh, I suppose, ratio for people to get their heads around. Well, and we'll wait for all the details, but I mean, will it be a postal ballot or anybody's sense? It's likely to be. Go to your Irish consulate and drop it in. No, I think it's going to be a postal ballot that they're looking at at the moment. Great. So, Patrick Holman, we look forward to seeing you in the United States in January or even March up Fifth Avenue for the parade. We could be. And, you know, like we we have plans going to the United States to commemorate the 1916 Rising for Easter as well. So you can bet your bottom dollar that there will be close relationships between AIM2 and Irish people in the States and in Australia and Canada and right around the world as well. Great talking to you. Thank you. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aidan Byrne. 
To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.